welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to the show and to this discussion. Uh, my name is Charles O'Grady. Uh, I'm a trans theatre maker um, and I'm chairing whatever this ends up being. Uh, and I will let the three esteemed panellists introduce themselves. Um, thanks, Charles. So I'm Anna Hickey Moody. I'm an Associate Professor in Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. I'm Rill Bolton. Uh, I am a PhD candidate uh, in the Gender and Cultural Studies Department at the University of Sydney. I am also neither a historian nor an art critic, so heads up. <laughs> Hello, I'm, I'm Lachlan Philpott. I wrote the play. There you go. Um, so I think the logical place to start, I think, is to talk to you, uh, Lachlan, about your process of writing this, because uh, obviously um, there's a lot of very either like um, vague or incorrect um, kind of scholarship around the story of Harry Crawford. Um, so I'm just interested to know kind of uh, how the process of writing the show worked. Yeah, and it might be helpful for you to explain to me and to the audience what you mean when you say vague and incorrect scholarship as well. Um, so, so, hold on, you wrote the, sh you wrote the script, uh, what was it, six years ago? Yeah. Um, as I understand it, a lot of the scholarship that's been written about Harry Crawford up until like very, very recently has been, um, has included a lot of uh, conjecture um, and a lot of sensationalism that I think um, makes it difficult to know who this person is. And I understand that that was part of your process writing it, like kind of uh, looking into the, the confusion surrounding Harry Crawford and like how that, how his identity kind of functioned. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I think that the, the confusion goes on in the play as well. I mean, it's part of the yeah. dramaturgy of the work. Um, you know, in the, in the sense that uh, it's very difficult, no matter who the person is, to actually uh, fix a whole lot of information on somebody who no, is no longer living. And for us to write a piece of theatre, well, you know, there are a whole lot of different levels and problems of representation. Uh, so, you know, so I guess, I, I, think it's, I think we kind of have to acknowledge that it's difficult in that sense to write about anybody. But you're asking about the process of, of writing the work, is that right? Yeah, I guess um, the process of writing it, the process of uh, researching it um, and kind of reconciling those uh, historical inconsistencies um, in a, in a stylized work. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess also the, the, the style of the work comes from um, the, the discoveries that you make when you research your work, but also, I mean, I think it's also really for you to point out that when, when a playwright in Australia is commissioned to write a work, and because I get asked this a lot about researching a work as well, and it seems to be something that's become uh, a, a very popular question at the moment, and I understand it. I think it's very important to research work, but also the problem is is that you know if you're if you're looking at how much research um, people may expect you to do for a work, and then you're looking at the fee that you get paid to actually write a play. Yeah. I mean, th this becomes a real problem because, you know, you got for, to write this play I got paid $10,000. Yeah. Uh, now, I'd, I worked on researching it for about six months. I then workshopped the play for three years. Wow. Uh, now, not non-stop, of course, but I, th I do think it is kind of worthwhile pointing out the, you know, that, that this, is, this is also part of the, the, the kind of reality of working in the arts too. And I find it really interesting that at the moment there are these questions about research and obviously... Playwrights and artists want to get things right, as right as we can. But also, I think it's worth pointing out for that for that amount of money, unless I, you know, had some sort of trust fund, which I don't, then I also have to be able to yeah. live. So, you know, if I work out that to, in writing this play, you know, the, the hourly rate that I was working for, then and I yeah. think I want to preface it by saying that too, because I think that, you know, artists are, are very keen to take responsibility and get things right. But we also have to make a living and I think we also shouldn't have to shoulder the responsibilities of a whole society in the art that we make. Completely. Uh, um, and I think you, uh, you make a very so good point as well. Sorry, so I'm so to go on with the process. So what I, what I, what I did with, my, with my, the time that I had, 
uh, was I spoke to as many people as I could from the transgender community in Sydney and also in New Zealand because, of course, Fellini came from uh, Worthwhile to Point originally, even though her, her family had migrated there from Italy. Uh, so I spoke to as many people as I could, but I guess for me I was not ever sure about, as we, as we still aren't, you know, I, I think it's impossible to go back and actually be there and be inside the heads of those people. I was never sure about uh, the nature of the relationship. What I was working with was uh, scanted detail than some other people at the time, you know, who've written more recent material had access to. And I was also working with uh, my intuition and doubts and being able to talk to a whole range of different people and try to figure out w what might have been going on and what sort of relationship they had and what might have been going through uh, Fellini's head. Because I think that's the job of a playwright. You know, we have to research, but we also have to get uh, inside each person who, who, who's appearing before the audience and understand their humanity. Uh, so, you know, what I, I guess what I did was I talked to as many people as I could and then I became aware of the fact that the popular story was not necessarily the story that rang true for me intuitively. There was also a really interesting article that was written by Ruth Ford, who's an academic at, currently at Monash, uh, and the, 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 what she was saying, which really flies in the face of some of the stuff that, say, has been published recently by Mark Tedeschi, uh, was that... Uh, she had serious doubts about whether or not uh, the, the the popular story about Annie Burkett being, uh, you know, the, the kind of victim uh, of in this relationship, and I use victim in the in in, in the way that it was used, uh, not not sort of my terms. Uh, you know, th there were there were a whole lot of doubts about this, and I think for me that rang rang the the sort of bells that I was very interested in. I was working very closely with first of all Focus Theatre who got the commission money, the, the fortune to commission the work, from um, the Australia Council. Uh, New Zealand I worked closely with a person who I've collaborated with for many years, who's an academic at uh, Victorian College of the Arts. And we really tussled with a whole lot of questions surrounding uh, representation, surrounding uh, you know, the portrayal of uh, people, questions about when the term transgender actually came into uh, discourse and also when people could have been aware that they, were, they, they may have been transgender. And I think it's interesting as well because... You know, we're talking about a, a time when things were very different and we're also talking about uh, a person who was very marginalised, you know, regardless of, of, of this because uh, Fellini was Italian, illiterate and, uh, you know, came to Australia pregnant. So, yeah, there were a whole range yeah. of different things that, you know, I was kind of tussling with. But I think, um, you know, I, I, I like to think that I did as much research as I could and was still able to eat. Yeah. No, um, and yeah, you do make a very good point um, that is important to acknowledge that obviously uh, the job of a playwright is not to be an activist or an academic necessarily. Um, as two academics, I'm going to... Um, so I was interested to talk, uh, Anna, about um, your work in kind of exploring um, the multiplicity of uh, identity and... Um, in terms of kind of looking at this show and the, the, the way that it engages with uh, a multiplicitous kind of discourse mm. around someone's identity. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that from your kind of academic perspective. Absolutely. So I think it was a really important point that Lachlan made that the story that he's offering different readings of um, is what got picked up by the press and there was a lot of sensational press around, you know, Fellini, Crawford... And that, you know, was a story that people like to sort of get stuck into. And what Lachlan's trying to do, he problematise it and say it could have been this way, it could have been that way, it could have been another way. And we're given sort of multiple perspectives on the different experiences. Um, even then, what we see is, a, is the, the very famous part of Fellini slash Crawford's life. And I thought some of you might not know that much about this person's trajectory... And I might just give you a little arc of life events um, that, are, that make up some of the multiple stories of Crawford slash Fellini because um, it, it's the dominant narrative that's been told about the life is problematised in this play in some ways, but it also is clearly recognisable. Um, and we could pick out other moments from this person's life and other experiences of gender from this person's life. So... 
1875, a baby called Eugenia Fellini was born in Italy to an Italian labourer father and was the oldest of 22 children born to the mother, 17 of which lived. Now, if that isn't a lesson about the pain of motherhood and being a woman and woman's labour, I'm not sure what is. So, 22 were born, 17 survived, 10 of which were boys and 7 of which were girls, which again I think is really interesting. And, you know, both the father um, and the mother needed uh, Eugenia to go out to work, but story has it that Eugenia adopted the her, her sort of masculine identity on, on her own terms and the family were very unclear as to how to respond. They needed the money but they were also slightly troubled by her wanting to leave the family and, and go out alone. Um, but by this time they were living in Wellington in New Zealand. They'd migrated when Eugenia was two and she went out to work as soon as she could um, and in 1877, she ran away and left home to work on a ship, which she loved. And I think we see that really fantastically in the play. And this is like one of the core kind of social justice movements of feminism, that, you know, women need to have their own income and work and and experience that side of themselves, which which we see Eugenia really embrace as Harry. And she joined the, the ship as Harry. Um, so the, we're looking at the 20th century... Um, 1877 she joined the ship and it was really bad luck to have a woman on board the ship so not only was she forming these bonds of mateship with the men, drinking with them, joking with them and enjoying herself, it was quite important that she wasn't discovered as a woman and so when she was getting drunk with the captain of the ship, she they both spoke Italian and she laughed that the grandmother would always call her Piccolina, which means my little granddaughter. And he realised what it was about her that, or him, that, that there was um, a discrepancy between the performance of masculinity and the fact that she'd been called the little girl and that there was something else in the history. And from then, the rape started and she was raped repeatedly by the captain of the ship and also by her crewmates. So by the time she was set down in Newcastle to get the bad luck off the ship, um, she was quite heavily pregnant. That was in 1989. She landed in Newcastle, which was when she first arrived in Australia. And um, a few months later, she um, gave birth to Josephine. Um, and so, of course, you know, as Lachlan has so astutely pointed out, she's illiterate, um, an Italian, you know, very marginalised woman who also wants to go and live as a man, um, gave Josephine to an elderly Italian woman who um, was infertile and um, went to work, um, where she met Annie Berklett in 1913 um, and fell completely in love. Um, and Annie was a widower with a son, but by all accounts they were in love and Annie married Harry, thinking he was a cisgendered white man, um, but they were very much in love. And obviously this is one version of the story that could be who knows what she married him thinking and, and the terms on which they came together. Um, so it's thought that for the first half of their four-year marriage, Annie believed Harry was a man. Um, in 1917, she died, and then Crawford was later convicted of her murder, but the story up until the conviction took some time. Um, and before his conviction, in 1919, he married again. Um, a widow over 50, Elizabeth King Allison, known as Lizzie. And he was then, Harry was arrested for the suspected murder of Annie Berklett um, on the 5th of July in 1920. He was released on medical grounds in February 1931 after 11 years in prison and he was imprisoned as a woman and Harry then became Mrs Jean Ford and ran a boarding house in Paddington. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I think we've got two periods of living as a woman, we've got two different marriages as a cisgendered white man and there are obviously multiple experiences of gender, of not fitting in and of discrepancies between social systems and the way in which you feel, the way in which you're read. So when Harry was taken to court, he was um, he asked to undress and asked to be imprisoned 
um, as a woman and it was then that they had a doctor inspect him and started to ask more questions. So, so sorry, that's a lot of information, but it's a fascinating life and it's a life that is even more complicated than the story that we've heard. Like we've heard lots of different insights, but we could open out and have much bigger questions around what it is to be a, a gendered body and, and to have um, schisms between the world at large and your experience of gender. No, thank you. Thank you for that. So the follow-up I was going to ask to to that, and I think this is kind of a question for all of you, um, is that, um, like, I noticed that um, even just, like, talking in this panel about Harry Crawford or Eugenia Fellini, like, there's, um, like, a real minefield of, like, the way that we talk about this person because... Um, the historical context in which this person existed didn't have language for. So we can, we can never really know who Harry Crawford was because there's not the kind of label or like identity politic language to describe that person. Um, so I guess uh, what I'm interested in asking is, um, I mean, for you as a playwright, but also for the two of you like as academics, um, I'm interested in kind of talking about the, the the choice to tell a historical trans narrative where there isn't the kind of discursive framework to talk about that person um, and kind of what what then becomes a process of kind of retroactively labeling someone. I'll respond to that. Okay. Um, I think I know what you're getting at, perhaps because we had a conversation a little bit earlier about it. Um, so I guess kind of what you're raising uh, and something that uh, some of my work touches on is this this um, this complicated situation that happens where you have these figures and you, from your standpoint here in 2016, it's not 2017. Oh shit, is it really? Oh my god. <laughs> well, that's embarrassing. <laughs> oh my god, that's so awkward. I kept looking at dates and being like, why is everyone putting the dates down wrong? Okay, anyway. Shit. Okay. Um, 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we look back on these these figures and we attempt to understand them through the lenses that we are using now, for instance, the lens of transgender, which in and of itself has shifted and changed over time and obviously did not exist as a term, uh, you know, as of what, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Probably move on that because it's 2017. Um, but, I mean, so the thing that I've been thinking about, and I, I think that the play kind of picked it up in, in slightly interesting ways, which was this kind of absence of language and an absence of being able to articulate oneself without a language that is comprehensible to oneself and also to kind of the society in which you exist. Um, and perhaps because I find it interesting, so I kind of noted it repeatedly that it kind of came up that Harry struggled to speak because he did not have the words with which to explain who he was. I mean, that raises the question of whether we form ourselves in relation to uh, the language that we have available uh, anyway, which begs the question of whether we really are there, uh, but maybe that's a bit meta. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I find that really interesting and I think that it, it kind of ties quite nicely to this, um, this uh, tension of kind of who gets to claim these historical figures, you know, so there's been a lot of uh, like tension, particularly between kind of a lesbian community and the trans masculine community, who gets to claim these kinds of figures who did not articulate themselves in any particular way. Um, and did not kind of express a particular label which you can then kind of adopt. Um, one thing that I did find interesting in the kind of the little blurb was the use of, uh, so there was kind of like a, a recognition that transgender wasn't a term being used, but there was this um, reference to like the father and uh, the husband. And I find that really interesting because there's this kind of, um, it, it moves kind of the focus away from some idea of a, a static identity that one is that is consistent across time, which we obviously know is not true, um, and moves it into a more of a, like a relational kind of uh, logic that that one is who one is to others, which can be a little bit fraught. But I, I quite like I quite enjoyed that whether that was intentional or not. Um, uh, would you like to speak to that then as a playwright? Also, thank you for translating. The question I was trying to... No, that was... No, you answered the question I wasn't asking. Um, can, can I make a brief point? Yes, of course. 
One of the, I think the point about language, part of what I hear in Rill's comment is one of the things that we teach a lot in gender studies is the fact that that language partly teaches us to become who we are. So the point about saying that the grandma always called me Piccolina is that instantly he was performing being a little girl and that's what gave him away. And that idea of language as performative, as making you a girl through saying a word or through learning to stand in a certain way or be a certain way, is one of the things that we often explore in gender studies and is kind of part, I think, of the point of what real saying is that now there are maybe, you know, more um, appropriate ways of being trans or being um, not a man or not a woman or changing, but... but the complexities of, of that change have been much harder in the past and it's always made difficult by language, which is gendering. There's no way to speak without kind of gendering oneself and others. Um, and certainly outside English, it gets even more complicated because everything's masculine and feminine in a way that English kind of subverts sometimes. So I think that's kind of a broader point that the play but also Harry's life teaches us the fact that we're always interpolating others in ways that are gendering and inter being interpolated ourselves in ways that are gendering. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think one of the very interesting things about the work is that um, everything that we get about Harry Crawford we get through a prism of how other people view him. Um, like... Uh, it's a really and it's a really beautiful kind of technique, if I might, say, if I may say so, of kind of yeah, just it, that like the figure of Crawford doesn't really exist in the play except through the lens of how other people have viewed him. Would you? I mean, I mean, you're welcome to dispute that if you disagree. As the writer of it. Well, I mean, I, I don't know because I guess ultimately it's a play. I mean. So, I, I mean, I, I, and I guess, you know, as, a, as someone who's not a who works in theatre, I mean, I think we're all aware of the fact that we're watching a play. Uh, and, 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 you know, that, that's, a, that's a kind of different l layer to it. But, I mean, I find it very interesting that the kind of conversations about, um, you know, a, a community claiming somebody uh, and, and the kind of ramifications of what, what that might mean. And I guess for me, you know, which might piss people off, but I guess the, one of the things that I was was keen to do in the play was to not allow this person to be claimed. But also, I think it's very interesting that, Craw uh, that you know Crawford Fellini has been claimed, and the rest of the people who were involved in this story, are like I mean An Annie Burkett, uh, you know, no one ever talks about Annie Burkett. Uh, she's she's I, I don't know whether she deserves um, any more consideration in history, but. You know, they, they they had. I think we would all agree that they had a happy relationship, that they lived together. I mean, whatever the circumstances are, I, feel, I find it I find it very interesting that you know we, we want to claim certain people, but other people are just kind of um, discarded. I mean, Josephine had a really miserable, horrible life. I mean, she died in the as, as in the her first her, her first giving childbirth, she died. You know, and so I mean, I, I guess for me. Um, it, it flies in the face of wanting to claim somebody, but I guess my interest in writing the play was to actually look at all of these people. And Fellini slash Burkett happened to be one of them. But I never wrote the play with any desire for anyone to claim this person because I guess at the end of the day, we all know it's a play. You know, we have actors playing and the lights come on and we go home and, you know, I mean, that, that there's no getting around that as well as a convention. And I think anyone who mistakes this for being real... Uh, I mean, I, I, there are there are kind of big questions about that, uh, and and academic with someone. But I also think that you know the the conversations. I think it's worth pointing out too, about gender and about you know gender theory and so forth are are all are still in the realm of people who are very privileged. Uh, there are still people out there who are unable to uh, to access these sort of conversations. And I think it's also worth noting that you know, the, for for somebody, there are still there are still Fellini slash Crawfords out there who don't have access to this. And I'm not saying that it's good or bad, but I think it might also be worth considering that because I don't think th things have changed that much either in that way. Yeah, um, and that's actually a really nice lead into something that I wanted to talk about, which is um, 
for, for all of you, um, what you feel the value is of a historical trans narrative in terms of uh, how that helps us kind of, and again, obviously the, the playwright is not necessarily an activist, um, but in terms of the context in which this is being put on, um, what do you all feel is the value of a historical narrative in terms of the way that it helps us progress in the conversation about trans identities now? Yeah, so I guess my point earlier was not actually uh, about, or I guess I was trying to problematize the idea of claiming mm. because it relies on a consistency, uh, I'm right. So it relies on the idea that you are trans now and that person over there was trans then, which like probably not because that's certainly not how they articulated themselves, um, which is why I kind of like a, a relational kind of... Um, articulation because people become their relations rather than a particular identity label that was not even in the realm of like their psychological being at that point. So my interest in terms of uh, like a historical um, kind of relationship to uh, these, I want to say characters purely because uh, the constant kind of like mediation of them means that they are no longer really people, unfortunately. Um, but so kind of this relation of, of characters, like, I don't know, we were talking about it earlier on, and I think that it's um, like queers are fairly invested in finding their uh, antecedents, is the correct word I'm looking for? Um, they're, they're kind of their, you know, their... A generational history or yes. establishing a generational exactly, history. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Super invested. Um, and that's, I think that in and of itself is quite interesting. Like, why are we super invested in that? What is it about us in the here and now that means that we need these people to hold these places for us in order for us to have our own validity and our meaning and our, our um, ourselves? And obviously part of that is a constant disregarding of uh, a truth of self or you know, you're not really trans, you're just deluded. Always a fun one. Um, that was a joke. Uh, but, um, yeah, so, I, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, as someone who is also very, like, interested in kind of um, other people's existences in different times, I do think it is, like, what does that say about us now? And what does that say about um, what we should be thinking about um, and how we can perhaps move away from trying to find a valid self now through thrusting upon um, these kind of like historical characters ourselves. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Real. Um, so I guess picking up a point Lachlan made around class, which I think is really important, and um, the different politics of class for non-heterosexual, non-gender normative people. And I agree that any talking about theory is a middle-class pursuit by and large. So I think if we're going to like look at the performativity of language, I get that's a middle-class calling. I don't really, I don't necessarily agree that the kind of politics that we're looking at um, are, are unlivable completely in as working class lives, I think that it's very, it still, it remains situation specific. So there are, you know, the Fafafin in New Guinea that have, that are um, boy women and that are a third gender that are, you know, that provide sexual and domestic service and have done so for generations. And that is one of many ethnograph ethnographic examples of um, th of third genders or sort of non-heterosexual sort of histories that aren't middle-class histories. So I agree that like, while we're doing a very sort of middle-class version of talking about these lives, there are many lives that are not middle-class that, um, you know, that are also part of my daily life. So I, I, I think that I wouldn't want to, to try and... Um, zhuzh up something that can have less zhuzhy versions basically but I do think I do think that thinking critically about how we tell stories um, can can give us new ways of seeing them that's all I don't mean to 
to make it a middle class thing because I don't think it is. And I think that it's important that we also and and that I think that these the the issue of not fitting in or having to reshape mould um, exists in working class lives in the same in as painful a way as it can in middle class lives. Um, they just articulate sometimes in different terms. Um, and I guess the point about heritage and generationalism is also about that thing about having happy endings and that we don't want to always tell stories of tragedy. And part of the drive for generationalism is saying, hey, look, there are these happy endings and hey, look, you know, so-and-so had two marriages and it was great or look at all these queer families, there are happy endings. So my reading of the desire for generationalism and ownership is partly about the positive reframing. We don't always want to tell the queer suicide story. We also want to, to look at happy, happy sort of stories and endings. Um, yeah, no, I, and I would also add, though, I mean, uh, the, the theatre is very middle class as well. I mean, you know, the, the, there's a level of privilege just to be here as well. Yeah. I think, I think for me, as a, as a, as a theatre maker, playwright, what um, I think it's really important to put people on the stage who aren't there a lot, and it sound, probably sounds a bit simple and and cliched, but I think it's a, it's an important thing to give people who aren't usually given a voice uh, a place on the stage. Um, I think we probably all experienced a lot of uh, people on the same type of people on the stage over and over again. And I think for me, um, in my, the body of work that I have, I'm always very interested in um, coming to understand people who we don't see as much on the stage and bringing them uh, to an audience. I mean, I guess in this this situation, I, I, for me, it's 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 really interesting that it, you know that, that the work. Um, could be uh, could be upsetting or could be owned by different communities, and I think that's good. But I also feel like I had a, I'm working on another piece at the moment, which is about the uh, the, the, the violent killings and um, gangs in Sydney in the 80s and 90s, and all of them. And you know, somebody said to me, "Oh, but they've already done something about that on SBS." And I feel like, uh, you know, how many fucking Anzac stories do we have to deal with? Um, I think I think it's really important that we we can acknowledge that we can tell the same story from lots of different perspectives, and we 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 are able to claim it without everybody having to agree with it. It's part of a culture actually evolving, and and becoming much stronger. And I think that's very very important. You know, if if people don't like the take that I had on this work and the choices that were made in the production, then there's nothing to stop this story being told from lots of different points of view, and I think that's a very important thing to for us to to take and to use because we don't need more stories about the Anzacs <laughs> or about other things that we so we see over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, thank you for that. I think that's a a good moment to uh, kind of open up for any questions from the audience. Firstly, congratulations on your production. I was uh, quite taken back by it because it interested me more ways than one. I found that I wanted to research the backstory, so I actually went and um, did some digging, of, thank God, on Google. <laughs> and um, I was totally amazed. Um, what you've dealt with is a very complex layer of stories which you managed to put to something that was very interesting and really showed a very confused individual. I have to agree and disagree with some of your comments purely and simply because I have a connection and affinity with the ethnic side and the cultural side of all the characters. Uh, to me, I just felt that it was a, a story that deserved being told and I was also very surprised. You didn't seem to really touch on the ongoing story with uh, Harry Crawford and Eugene because they were two characters and I always feel that they're two characters. Even though they were the one, it just felt that you didn't sort of um, concentrate on what happened to her afterwards or the potential of what happened afterwards. But once again, congratulations on a fantastic piece of work. 
do you feel that her ethnic background, what she had gone through, may be attributed to her protection of her identity? Um, look, I think that could possibly be the case. I might just open up the floor to any other questions. Is there? Does anyone else have another question? Um, hi there. Um, first of all, that word to the playwright, I thought the, um, the way you staged it with a series that I would call like Under Milk Wood, you did that sort of voices around, which I thought was very strong and uh, very effective. Uh, one thing that I'd like to know is why there wasn't a bit more about why he killed her to, uh, to make it more credible. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, thank, thank you for um, the, the comments about the show. And I also have to acknowledge that um, Kate, the director, and the, you know, because the, the, I just, I write, and it could be not a disaster, cause it, but, you know, obviously a really great team brought it to the stage. Um, but um, I guess you have to make choices too. I think that for, for me, the reason that I kind of went with the this story is that when I went to see the exhibition uh, at the Police and uh, Justice Museum, I was kind of very interested in the, the public's response to uh, the story and their fascination with the, the article, the, the dildo, the handmade dildo, and the questions about what had gone on in the bedroom, which I kind of went, well, oh God, really? In 2012, people are still asking these sort of questions and they're still kind of fascinated by that. Um, it's a bit, it feels a bit sad, really, because they're the same questions that people were obsessed with, you know, a hundred years ago, or just under a hundred years ago, and we're still asking the same questions. Um, and I think for me, that that was kind of what what led me. I feel like there, you know, that the theatre is not necessary. I mean, I've spoken to a few people, and they went, "Oh, did you write a courtroom drama?" And you kind of go, "Well, no, not really, because um, there there are other there are other there are certainly other mediums that would would deal with that better." And I, I think you have to make choices. You can't show the whole story. It's a very complicated story. It gets confusing. Uh, people, I mean, you know, even people who who have kind of been studying it for years and years still get confused by by all of the things, and it, and it's hard. So I think you just have to make choices. And the choice that you know that I made was to cover that particular part of uh, of the story. I mean, it'd be great if somebody else would like to write a play about the. The, the miscarriage of justice or, you know, a whole number of other things, the murder. I think the murder is hard, though, too, because it, there was never any conclusive evidence about it. You know, there was never any certainty that, that it was actually uh, Crawford who did it. Uh, there he was said the he didn't kill her. He, I, I just, yeah, he, he said he didn't kill her. So... And, and I mean, again, we're talking about 100 years ago when, the, when evidence was... was um, non-existent compared to today and when it would have been very hard to, ch to prove anything. And also that, that was, um, Fellini Crawford wasn't um, convicted until brought into the police until a few years after. So it's very complicated. And I, I didn't really know how to show that kind of complication on stage. The story itself is quite, um, quite confusing. And I just went, oh, God. Uh, so that's why, I mean, that's kind of why I bookended it there. I mean, originally I was actually going to write a, write a play that had a second act which was set in Australia today. And the kind of through line was the tin, uh, which was which was kind of an interesting idea. But I also kind of felt that when I was writing that second act, that not only did the drama kind of not measure up, but also things haven't changed enough to justify a second act. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Can I just make a comment about the interesting points about the? I completely agree things haven't changed enough and, and it seems like maybe what Harry Crawford was convicted of was having lived um, as a man the whole time because he said he didn't kill her, they weren't sure whether she died in the fire or whether something had happened before she was burnt. Yeah, and so there were a range of different questions and whether or not he was convicted for murder or whether he was convicted for um, having a, a gender identity that didn't align with his biology is is kind of part of the story, I think. Yeah, and I think that's true, and I think it's also about transgressing, a sec, uh, you know, to to actually have a sexual relationship, uh, because there were, at that time there were an awful lot of um, women who either went to work uh, as as men or went to war, yeah. uh, and I mean, look, who's to know what what how they may have defined themselves, but I think they were all often celebrated. 
uh, particularly the the women who went to war and dressed as you know dressed as well, however you want to word it. I'm not sure how to word it. They were all celebrated. The, the women who went and worked as drovers were celebrated, but uh, this was a different case because I think it threatened oh, it threatened heterosexual marriage and it threatened heterosexual relationships. I mean, and this is what, what we're still talking about this today. It's really f crazy and nuts, but. Gonna add my two cents. Uh, yeah, yeah, basically just echo that the obsession with, uh, I mean, genitals that are not <laughs> engaging in heterosexual sex is fascinating. It's like, why do we care? Um, but also, I kind of wanted to jump back to this question over here because I do think it's um, like it's important to recognize or engage with the ways that, uh, as you talked about kind of earlier, that uh, non whiteness um, really does impact the way that people can negotiate and do gender and the kinds of bodies that are going to be targeted for regulation um, in society. So in this context, you know, was Harry more likely to be kind of attended to because he might have looked Italian or might have had kind of phenotypical kind of associations with Italianness and Italianness was not, you know, acceptable. And I mean, even the fact that, you know, we're, we're talking about somebody who changed their name to Harry Crawford and spoke with a Scottish accent. I mean... <laughs> You know, th th yeah, so I, I think certainly. And people who were from Southern Europe were, I mean, they were excluded right up until the White Australia policy. I mean, even that favoured people who came from the north, north part of Europe, people who were Celtic. Uh, you know, so that, that was, what, 1950s and 60s. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about what... F I can't do maths, but it was a long time before. <laughs> Um, and just to kind of tap onto my research, um, you know, that, that stuff still plays out and, and particularly in terms of representation, which you also mentioned earlier, the kinds of representations of non-white uh, in my area of interest, trans masculinity, has real lived impacts on trans masculine people of colour um, and brother boys and trans masculine indigenous people, um, the capacity to identify, you know, others as potentially related to themselves, you know, is very difficult if all you're seeing is white bodies and usually really buff and, you know, got a full head of hair and, you know, it's just not everyone, is it? <laughs> I think there was a question there. Oh, Lachlan, I was going to ask, how did you manage, there's such a complicated story, to make it such an understated, poetic language that was absolutely riveting and that it was part of being human like to live in secret is the worst thing a human can do and there was that poor fellow girl <laughs> woman living in a secret life you know but it was such understated language this very very complicated life how did you do that <laughs> it was excellent i mean it's awesome Thank you. I, look, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it, it took it, it took a long time to get this play right. Um, I think I mean the wrong term. I'm I'm happy with it, so I'm going to say I, I I got it right. Um, I, I think also the, the again the production deserves a lot of credit for for the, the 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 fact that it's understated and there's these beautiful moments of still. And Sydney theatre Sydney theatres are so afraid of stillness. Um, you know, there's so much unnecessary business going on on stage in Sydney that when something's still, people think that the actors forgot their lines. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Kate's brave enough to go, no, just sit still, you know, eat your dinner or whatever. And I think that's, that, that's, that's part of it. But I guess, too, it's, it's trying to find an economy in um, uh, using the, the, the man. And the, I, I, I think I was always thinking of the, the man and the woman had to play a particular role and it had to be very functional and do a lot of things but it, I mean I guess for me it also had to try and be um, poetic as it could be um, it seems like that if they weren't if if the role that they have is not a very pleasant role maybe it's kind of you know it's just covering it in something that makes it sound a bit nicer because they're not very nice really they're not it's a pretty thing the think that I think they're thankless roles to play as well just curious to know if the word decent is something of your choice or something that you found in your research or the way people described it yeah um i think that's something that i chose quite deliberately is that that and i think that comes from 
that that's the sense of what I I mean I, w when I was researching I also read a lot of um, the, the newspapers of the time uh, and you know the kind of the words that that were catchphrases then or the words in the right maybe it's advertising uh, you know I guess also I mean the, the, the play is set in 19 you know that 1917 ish uh, and that's in the middle of World War one where you know a tenth of Australia's population was sent to Europe and few came back uh, and I think you know that th there's a whole there's a whole kind of context of what it is to be patriotic what it is to be decent uh, at, at that time in Australia and it's also I mean I think it really plays into the whole notion of what it means to be a man or a woman when you, when a tenth of your population has gone to you know you, to the north of Europe to fight uh, that ob and obviously that you know again I haven't done a PhD on that but uh, it's but yeah I think that the, the point that there was a, there was probably a necessity as well for people to try and keep hold of something because it, I think all around the world it probably looked like things were falling apart. And again, that's why this play is relevant today. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so on point. Uh, questions? Anyone? No? Yes? I just wondered about the title, and is there any kind of uh, reference back to Hitchcock's The Trouble with Harry and the Dead Body at all? Um, yeah, or yeah. Or is that just something? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's funny because I. Uh, yeah, I try, we did have a lot of different titles, but that one that one kept coming back, and it is a kind. I mean, I think th for me there are there are certain things about that that film and what you know certain readings of it and this this the play you know the the, the body and so forth. So yeah, I mean it's it's deliberate. It's also quite good because I I didn't up until this point realize that you could actually get away with it as well. Like there's no ti oh, titles don't have a, a don't have a copyright. Um, <laughs> so that so it's good and it's good at and it's bad sometimes, but in this case it's okay, I think. But yeah, but it's interesting because um, I've just been in France working on a translation of the play there, and they, the the French can't the, the trouble doesn't have the same connotations that it does in English, and so you can't use the word trouble, and so we had a, like we we really had to work hard to find a title. For the for the play, which would work in French as well, so it's interesting. It's, it's yeah, it's the the Crawford affair basically mm. in yeah. French, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, just before I finish, I want to say thank you so much for an exquisite play, beautifully written, and the the direction and the creative team and all the actors was just wonderful. Just saying to Jan that it was this incredibly sensory experience of, I felt like I was living. It was almost like immersive theatre without the immersion in a sense through the language and the direction and I felt like I was really back in a Sydney that I didn't know but I was born in Sydney but it was really wonderful so thank you for that. Uh, any other questions or flattery for Lachlan? <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay um, I, have one, I have one more question that is a good note to end on. Uh, we've kind of spoken about it a little bit but um, in terms of you know this show being put on during Mardi Gras and kind of becoming part of a, of a patchwork of kind of queer stories. Um, I guess I would be interested to hear from each of you, like what you, what you hope that work like this and the telling of these kind of stories will uh, do or continue to do in terms of um, creating that patchwork of narratives and kind of bringing um, issues of um, discrimination and of uh, identity um, to a broader audience. I've got the microphone. I'll go first, really quick. Um, it's, it's interesting to me because the, the the first production of this play was at I was in Belfast um, at Outburst, um, and I, I've been I've been to Belfast a few times again, working with um, Alison, who I've done a lot of work with, uh, and. Um, Outburst is, a, is an extraordinary festival, uh, GLBTIQ festival. I think it's it is extraordinary because in Belfast there's still a lot of things uh, that people are actually fighting for and so uh, making work becomes very political. Uh, and I think sometimes in with, with things like Mardi Gras Festival we, 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 we lose sight of the, 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 you know, the fact that 
uh, we, we lose sight of the history of the fight, but we also kind of feel that there's a there's a complacency, and I feel like a work like this has the has uh, it disrupts some of the other stuff that's going on. You know what I mean? And I think it's important for it to be a disruptive force. If if I mean I I, I get a bit, um, and I'm a, I'm a gay man, and I get tired of seeing you know plays that that uh, you know use a, a torso to a sexy torso to sell the. the the, the play exclude uh, a whole range of people because it's you know about um, problems that I just think are kind of dull and narcissistic and so I think you know it's and I'm not talking about all work but I think there's a lot of stuff that falls into that category and I feel like I hope that this sort of work can, will allow well will allow a different audience to see a story that is relevant to them on stage and will also disrupt uh, that that the kind of status quo of that we get we, we, that we get in a city where we don't have to fight for things anymore as much. Yeah. Uh, completely. So as the person without any artistic background or capacity to draw at all, um, I think that what I, I, w I was thinking about this as I was <laughs> invited to come on this panel, I was like, God, what do I have to say about art? Um, and I think that what I do love about art as mostly a consumer um, is that it allows you to access parts of your brain that are otherwise kind of fairly rigid. So like thinking about the way that the gender binary permeates so much of our existence, right? Like we can't do anything without thinking about the gender binary being brought into it one way or the other. But I feel like art and kind of uh, creative endeavours and uh, I probably include um, like certain kinds of things that you probably wouldn't necessarily think about as art. So, for instance, trans-masculine people's YouTube, <laughs> like, videos. Um, I feel like they allow you to kind of get underneath those kind of fences and perhaps feel and think and have an experience that perhaps moves us away from those kinds of things that, you know, personally I'm not a great fan of the gender binary. Um, but, yeah, so I think that that's what I really love about it. And I think... Um, oh god, I actually literally forgotten your question. <laughs> I just went on a ramble. No, no, you, you've answered. Answer. You answered the question. Oh, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> no, the so the, the the question is like, what the power of a work like this, or yeah, as you say, like work in general, has to kind of. Yeah. No, you absolutely did. <laughs> Getting under the fences. Yeah. That's fab. So I'll be brief. Um, and thanks so much for your questions and attention. It's been really great to be able to sort of talk through why this play matters. And I think that there's also a point to be made in terms of its contemporary importance about um, queer archives or queer histories and that feeling of belonging that people that might be feeling like they need to get under fences today um, come after a lot of people that have got under fences and a lot of them have very happily kept going. And, you know, Harry um, isn't one of the stories of happiness, but he is a story of success nonetheless, is that he had two marriages and, and had his, you know, very decent life before um, things fell apart. But there are many other queer archives that give really positive stories and history. So I think that's one of the reasons why telling these stories matters, apart from having a bloody good night out and maybe getting under some fences while you're there. 